the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And if you are trying to crack the online code, you know, in my latest newsletter on the rise, this summer I shared a fact that more Americans actually access church via hybrid options than attend in person. This is a trend that is not going away. Well, I've got Stephanie McNeil on the podcast today. She used to work at BuzzFeed. We talk about how to build an authentic, engaged audience on social media, the dark side of becoming an influencer, how to deal with haters, snarkers, and negative comments, writing headlines and captions that get attention, and a whole lot more. And this is from people who are the best in the business. So it's not a BuzzFeed anymore, but my goodness, I'll tell you, do we learn a lot in this podcast. And today's episode is brought to you by Convoy of Hope. To learn more about how you can feed a child every school day for just $10 a month, go to convoyofhope.org slash carry. And by glue, you put a lot of heart and effort into communicating with your people. If you want a free texting program, go to get.glue dot us slash texting and you can sign up for free so stephanie mcneil is the former buzzfeed news editor and she talks about how to build an authentic engaged audience and she's the author of swipe up for more she is currently the senior editor at glamour magazine and as a senior culture writer and reporter at buzzfeed news stephanie specialized in covering internet culture the influencers and creators who shape it viral trends pop culture and how social media impacts our in real life world I think you're really going to enjoy this. I know a lot of you already appreciate how important having a strong digital presence is, but if you're one of those people who don't, I think it's important to listen in. Why? Because that's where the world is at. It's not where it's going, it's where it's at. If you hope to reach Gen Z, if you hope to reach millennials, guess what? You've got to be online. So. Speaking of digital options, as church leaders, are you tired of seeing your low open rates on email? I mean, a lot of people are. And sending out communications you pour your heart into that never get seen? Well, you're going to want to check out Glue's free text messaging for churches. That's right. It's free. So according to Gartner Research, a staggering 98% of text messages get read. And that's an incredible stat because a lot of churches haven't really cracked the texting code yet. Best part, Glue wants to help, and they are offering you a solution that is 100% free, no hidden costs, no hidden paywalls. That's because Glue is committed to empowering churches like yours to connect with uh, people and people in your community better than ever. And when you sign up, you'll also get access to Glue's growing platform that's revolutionizing the way churches connect. So just go to get.glue.us slash texting. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O. That's get.glue.us slash texting to sign up for free. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about my friends at Convoy of Hope. I've gotten to know these guys over the last little while. They are a faith-based nonprofit organization that has a driving passion to feed the world through children's feeding initiatives, women and girls empowerment, and disaster response. Last year, Convoy fed over half a million children every day at school in 37 countries, also responded to 75 natural disasters and humanitarian crises around the world, 
Over their history, Convoy has distributed $2 billion in food and supplies to more than 200 million people worldwide. And they make it easy for your church, for your business, or for you as an individual to deliver tangible hope. So if you want to partner with Convoy, you can start with as little as $10 a month, and that actually feeds a child every day at school. Uh, and it can create hygiene kits for disaster survivors for the upcoming hurricane season and a whole lot more. I mean, there are so many ways to get involved. Go to convoyofhope.org slash carry. That's convoyofhope.org slash C-A-R-E-Y, and you can get started today. Well, now my conversation with Stephanie McNeil. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I think everybody is kind of interested in influencers, or a lot of people are, but very few people make it a habit to study them. How did you get interested in studying influencers? Pure my own passion for them, I suppose. Uh Um, And passion, I will say, is kind of a funny word to use, but I think it is apt in this situation. Uh, You know, I came up... I, you know, when I was graduating from college was really when influencers were becoming very prevalent. And first they Mm -hmm. started as bloggers. um, And I was really into reading blogs. And I remember in my first job out of journalism school, I was a homepage editor and I would just sit there and wait for something to happen. And while I was waiting, I was reading blogs. Um... And I didn't really consider it something that I would ever write about uh, professionally or in my journalism mm-hmm. career. But then I ended up over at BuzzFeed News um, and I really fell into a enjoying doing trending news for BuzzFeed News uh, when BuzzFeed News was first starting. And I founded the trending news team over there. And we were really experimenting with a lot, seeing what people wanted to read, seeing what people wanted to share. And at that point, I had been reading blogs and uh following Instagram influencers for five or six years. And it was something that I was really interested in. I found them fascinating and I found their interpersonal drama fascinating. I found their lives fascinating. To me, they were celebrities. And to everyone that I knew in my quote unquote real life, you know, my friends from college or whatever, um, we would discuss them as if they were celebrities and talk about them. Hmm. But we never really saw them in mainstream media. No one was really covering them. Um, Some people were covering YouTubers a little bit, but it was very, um, it wasn't something that people were talking about a lot. And uh, in my role as the head of the breaking or the trending news team, I was kind of thinking to myself, why don't we just start covering it and seeing if people are interested? And so we did a couple of stories on, um, influencer drama that was going on online and they really resonated with our audience. And it was something that I really loved doing. And I happened to have this encyclopedic knowledge of because I had been just consuming it for so long. Um, and yeah, so then I started actually writing and reporting about it and really started, you know, honing in on something that I really wanted to explore deeply. Hmm. Well, we're going to talk all about influencers because we have a lot of young leaders listening who have platforms on their own. But I got to go to BuzzFeed News for a minute. So it's really interesting. What is the history of that company? I mean, I read the headlines like everybody else from BuzzFeed News. And it's it's not like the New York Times or the LA Times or the Chicago Tribune or anything like that. 
it's a much more new social, not a social media company, but a digital media company. Can you give us a little bit of context on like what its business model is? That's a loaded question considering what just happened. Um, I know, I know, because they didn't tell everybody what just happened just before we recorded this. Yeah, unfortunately, BuzzFeed News uh, closed. uh, It's shutting, we found out it's shutting down uh, a few days ago. Um, but you know, the I was there company for, or just a division, just the news division. Um, so okay. Buzzfeed as an overall company, um, is still a company and they own the Huffington post and complex. And that is mm. continuing on, but Buzzfeed news, the news division, uh, is, will be shutting down. Um, and you know, I, I was there for eight and a half years. Um, I was there really for, I think it started in 2012 and I started in 2014. So I was, it turns out I was there for most of its existence. Um, And I think that the only way that this book would have ever come into existence would, was because I worked at Buzzfeed news, because like I said, they're very much about experimentation and Buzzfeed as a company was started um, in the late two thousands as simply a homepage, I guess you could say, for spotting viral trends. So back in, Mm -hmm. you know, 2007, 2008, um, you know, there was like Dig and, you know, Reddit, obviously. And there was things that were quote unquote going viral on the internet, but it was all very new. And there wasn't a lot of websites about viral content um, and things people wanted to share. And what the founder of BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti, did was he created a buzz feed that would flag um, these viral trends that were coming up. If that's, you know, a big YouTube mm-hmm. video or, um, you know, a big, you know, this was even kind of really before memes, but, um, you know, a big like, you know, blog posts that were going viral or something like that. Um, so that was the origin of BuzzFeed. And then eventually um, they started doing uh lists of viral trends. Um, they started making quizzes, they started making videos, um, all capturing kind of this internet zeitgeist and Buzzfeed news, um, was really the first news outlet that really lived and breathed the internet and saw the internet as the center of culture and saw it as Mm. the place where every, where American slash world society and culture was really being created as opposed to just kind of a side character in everything. Um, for example, you know, we never used any of the, um, traditional news gathering things like the AP wires or iNews mm-hmm. is a program that has all the AP wires and stuff like that. Um, we use Twitter, you know, we are very much like tapped into the, into the web. Um, and I think because of that, you know, I was able to really carve out this niche for us in trending news and internet culture um, that was really celebrated and understood in a way that I think, you know, everyone's doing it now, but, you know, back, Mm. back in 2015, 2016 was pretty new. Well, I'm glad you gave us a little history because at first that's exactly what in my head BuzzFeed was. BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed was like the latest viral, this, the latest viral, that. But then in the last few years, and I don't know if this contributed to its demise or not, it started reporting on other events that other, like the New York Times would report on. Like, I'm like, wait, this is from BuzzFeed? It didn't, 
to me, it was like crossing over into almost like a cross between the TMZ, uh, TMZ and the Hollywood Reporter, you know, where it was starting to, to cross streams a little bit. And I think the thing that speaks to me about that is a constant sense of experimentation, right? Which Absolutely. a lot of leaders are terrified of doing. It's like, we can't experiment. What are the big, uh, first of all, got to talk about the headlines. You were involved in BuzzFeed News. They are almost irresistible. Uh, like, I find it hard not to click on BuzzFeed headlines. So do you have like a formula for headline writing? Or- uh I'm, I don't want to brag, but I used to teach headline classes at BuzzFeed News. Um, you can brag. You can brag. Go ahead. Uh, I also was a pretty big contributor to something that I think people really hate now, which it got really overplayed, which is fine, which is something we kind of invented was in order to capture the conversation around a news event, we started writing headlines with the format people are saying. Um, Mm. you know, people think, you know, Trump's tweets suck, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. and then like Mm -hmm. I writing a story Mm -hmm. about, you know, people getting mad about something on the internet. Um, and so that, you know, that's my claim to fame is I kind of, you know, was pretty involved in (laughs) that, in overdoing that headline construction. Um, but Uh I think with headlines, one thing that Buzzfeed was really was baked into BuzzFeed News's DNA that I think I will, I think is really prevalent in the journalism industry at large, but I know that I personally really have taken forward um, from my experiences there was, I really believe that people love stories and people love to connect with other, people love, people want to connect with other people through storytelling. Um, and Mm -hmm. so I think the best indicator of whether something is a good story or not is if people want to share it. Um, Mm. and that's something that we always try to put forth with our headlines. Um, which the thing that I would always say is don't think in journalism school, don't think in, you know, oh, what is like, what would the New York times put on their website or what would CNN put on their website? Think about if, you were going to send this story to a friend, what would you say in the text message? What would you say in the email mm. subject? And it probably would be something like, you know, let's say there's this, you know, clown on fire down the street. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't say, you know, clown on fire, comma. You would say, this clown is on fire down the street. You know, that's how you would text it to a friend. Um, And, you know, that really conversational style because we wanted it to be so organic that you wanted to share it. And I think not to get too uh, philosophical, but that was something that always really made me feel very excited about the kind of stuff that I covered was if you look at it, there's a really, you know, business black and white way to look at it where it's like, you're driving traffic, you're driving views, you're driving advertisers, all that kind of stuff. If you're doing trending content. But to me, it was like, I, you know, we have the opportunity to really not only drive conversation on the internet um, and in culture, but also drive connection with people person to person. You know, you think about how many, how many of your, you know, really closest relationships are, truly kept alive by sending links back and forth or, you know, talking Mm. about cop culture or talking about a mutual interest. Um, So for me, that's always been a really interesting thing about um, and a really gratifying thing for me about 
um, you know, covering culture, covering internet culture was like, wow, you can really create connection between people. Um, and that's mm. what I hope to do with the book as well. You know, I hope it's something people can talk about and, you know, in my wildest dreams, I picture, you know, a book club or something like that. Yeah. So if I can get a little more nerdy on headlines, because sure. I, I have taught in this space as well. I love your idea of writing so that people would share, which is really interesting. So are you, to, to ask a very short, simple question, are you, when you're creating a headline, writing more for SEO or more for instant sharing? Like this is going to be a flash in the pan, not something somebody discovers a year down the road via SEO. What was your um, I mean, I think, I think now, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of more sophistication in, of course, now, you know, SEO and, you know, trying to, you know, optimize for different formats. There's whole audience development teams, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, back when I started up as News, there really was not a lot of that. It was really, like you said, it yeah. was all about experimentation and it was all about trying to make things that people wanted to read and share, you know, kind mm. of full stop. That was it. So yeah, I mean, that was, that was the thing that I, um, that I focused on the most and still do to some extent, although, you know, we have, we have a lot more sophisticated tools now. Well, some of us old time bloggers, I started blogging seriously in 2012 and have a number of friends who who have built really big companies doing that. I mean, if you look at a decade ago in the blogosphere, sharing was so easy. You would write a post, you'd post it. There's the little share on Facebook, share on Twitter, share on whatever. And people would like share, share, share. And I've had articles that have had, you know, easily a quarter million views or, or quarter million shares or more. And then that started to die. Facebook changed in 2018. Google started changing its algorithm, et cetera, et cetera. How, because you worked at BuzzFeed right up until almost the very end, March of 2023. How did, how did you get sharing to happen in a world that had changed dramatically. when And I, what I'm talking about here is sharing text, like that URL. How did you guys do it? Because you did it, despite its demise, relatively successfully. Absolutely. Um, I don't think anything changed from my perspective. I have always right. just wanted to continue to write things that people wanted to share. And I, I do believe that Audience is relative. Audience scale is relative. But I do think that if you write something really compelling, the audience will come. And I don't know if that's naive, um, but okay. I, I do I do think, you know, I don't think we're going to ever see the numbers that and the amount of sharing that we were seeing in the early days of Facebook. Like you said, you know, yeah. millions and millions and millions of views. Um, yeah. But I do think that people haven't changed. People still want to read. And I think one of the things that's really been a shame, and I talk about this in the book a little bit as well, is that it's not like people have fundamentally stopped wanting to read something like a blog. You know, in the golden age of blogging, there was just so much to read. And there were so many people just sharing their thoughts and their creativity online um, without having to optimize and without having to, you know, try and go viral or whatever. And that I wish we could get back to that because I think that if we can, if we can bring it back, I think people, the audience is still there. I think that, you know, 
social media, ad dollars, all of that has just made everything a lot more complicated. It has made it more complicated. It's interesting. I used to write a church, or I still write a church trends post every January. And back in 2016, I think the first year I did it, 2017, you know, that post would get 100,000 page views. Easy. And then it was like 80, and then it was 70, and now it's more like 40 or 50. So we did an experiment because things are moving to short form video, and this is sort of a parable, and then I'll pop the question. But um, this year, my uh, social media manager said, hey, we had a filming day in December. She's like, shoot 60-second reels that we can post to social on these church trends. So I had to take like comprehensive 3,000 words worth of thought break it down into eight 60-second posts, which I did. We shot it via video. And what was really interesting is the written post went live. It got 40 or 50,000 views, which is fine. But then we shared trend number one on social. It got 120,000 views. And what that told me is, oh, the audience is still there. They've just changed their consumption patterns. Did you see that BuzzFeed? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. I don't even, is it necessarily that the audience has changed its consumption or is that the, I mean, that's a whole other podcast, but Uh I I think, I think the platforms have had a lot more to do with it rather than audience changing their taste. Oh, you mean like like the big tech companies? Yeah. I mean, look at Substack. When Substack came back, came into the picture, all of a sudden people were signing up in droves for their favorite journalists and authors and everyone, you know, started a Substack and people really, really were excited about it. And, you know, there are people with like over a hundred thousand subscribers on Substack. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's, that says that people do want to read blogs and they do want to read in that kind of format. Um, I don't know. I, I, okay. I, blame, I blame the tech platforms personally. Uh-huh. I don't think that, I don't think that between 2012 and now all of a sudden the only way people can consume things is 60 second videos, but that's just me. It is, you know what? And, and it's great. And those who are watching it will realize that, yeah, you did graduate from college recently. This is not uh, a a 40 or 50 year old saying, I wish it was the way it was 10 years ago. I mean, you're young, (laughs) you're on the cutting edge, the whole deal. But I think that's really interesting, Stephanie, because um, what we have is a lot of people trying to get a message out there on this podcast. And I think the lesson is what worked five years ago doesn't necessarily work today. Any other headline tricks or formulas or tips that you want to share with people? And that could be captioning Mm -hmm. for your Instagram posts or TikToks or, um, you know, titling a headline or a blog post. I think in general, um, something that a lot of content creators have told me recently over the past couple of years is what they've realized is there, if you kind of try to trace, uh, chase every single trend, you're never going to get ahead. So there's mm. some people who, you know, were really big bloggers and, you know, were really, um, did well on Instagram, but once TikTok and Reels came out, they tried to pivot entirely to TikTok and Reels and, it was just like a mess. They mm-hmm. seem completely uncomfortable. You know, not everyone wants to be on camera. Um, you know, a lot of the TikTok trends are, you know, kind of weird. If you're not in, like, if you're not selling it a hundred percent, it can be a little awkward, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have kind of, I think one thing that came out of the 
Instagram's huge push into reels uh, when they were really trying to chase TikTok was a lot of influencers kind of came to the realization, especially ones who have been doing this for a really long time, that I don't need to chase every single trend. That's going to make people want to follow people who are authentic and people want to Mm -hmm. consume content that's authentic, I think ultimately. And if you're a creator who really loves the video format, um, you know, I'm thinking some of these newer lifestyle creators who do, you know, day in my life, get ready with me, all that kind of stuff. Like I find that stuff very compelling and there's people that I follow that, you know, do that to a great job. Um, But I think a lot of people are, not trying to chase as much, you know, being the biggest and the best content creator out there, but more of finding your audience, really cultivating that audience and really having a loyal audience. And that's something that the brands are really responding to as well. Um, you know, they are really looking a lot more at engagement when, um, you know, choosing who they're going to partner with and, you know, trying to find an audience that's loyal rather than just, a huge volume because you can have mm-hmm. a million followers, but if they're not invested in what you have to say, it you might as well have 10,000 really, really loyal followers who will buy whatever you tell them to buy. What would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions uh, people have about influencers or even the world of influencers? I think the biggest misconception is that none of it is real. Um, mm. I think there is a lot of, there are a lot of people that think that it's all a mirage. Um, Hmm. Either most influencer followers are bots um, or fake or purchased in some way. um, And that the influencers themselves are essentially completely fabricated being, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that leads to a lot of people completely writing off the industry because if you see someone with a million followers, but you think all of their followers aren't real, so it doesn't really matter. Um, and they, you think that they, you know, have no integrity and they, you know, are completely different Instagram versus in reality. Um, it, it's really easy to say, oh, who cares about that? Um, so I think that's that's probably the biggest misconception, I would say. Well, and to that point, I mean, I think most of us have probably seen either a documentary or a post or two or an article about the influencers who rent the private jet for a half hour, get their photo shoot and get out. Uh, the people who have bought followers, et cetera, et cetera. In your view, like what percentage is that of the industry? Is that like, are we looking at 1% who do that? 99% actually have a million followers of the people who have a million followers. Is it like, what is the, what is the behind the scenes, honest truth on, on that? I know what documentary you're talking about. And uh-huh. one thing I, one thing I found interesting about that documentary is there was never actually any influencer who spoke to them who said, yeah, we, we fake being on private jets with toilet seats. That was something that Mm -hmm. as far as I could tell, they came up with. So I found that to be kind of interesting on its face. Like 
Was okay, that the well, fake famous documentary yes, we're talking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is an interesting piece. And the premise there is they took average people and made right. them famous, right. right? As opposed to exposing somebody who claims to have half a million followers, but right. you know, half right. of them are bought. Yeah. Right, right. Um I think it depends what you would view as fake. You know, I think. I think that buying followers, as far as I have been able to tell, is not as prevalent of a practice as people would think. Okay. Um, I think one thing that is mo- a lot more common, you know, I can go on Google and Google buying bot followers and buy bot followers for a hundred bucks or whatever. That's something that anyone can do. Um, but I don't, that's not really that common. Um, Hmm. just pure bot followers because it would be really hard to run a business that way because if you have bot followers there, unless I guess you get very sophisticated bots, they're not going to be commenting on your stuff and, reacting to your posts and clicking your links. So if you have 50,000 bots and no one clicks on your links, it's that's going to be really hard to get another brand deal if their your last brand is like, oh, we sold nothing because all mm-hmm. your followers are fake. Um, I think the thing that's a lot more common is influencer platforms not being 100% organic. And what I mean by that is there is a lot of machination behind the scenes of aspiring influencers who are in Facebook groups or, you know, larger email chains or, you know, text chains, or, you know, there's all these different places that people could gather um, and can kind of boost each other up, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. So if you're someone who wants to be an influencer, you can join one of these groups and you can get a thousand people to comment on your post. Now that's not bots that's not fake followers but that's kind of falsifying engagement in a way yeah that's like scratch my back i'll scratch yours right 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 um another another example would be um loop giveaways which i discuss a little bit in the book um, but i've done a lot of reporting on which is those things on instagram that you see where it says me and 10 of my friends got together to give you guys a prize, all you have to do is follow us all. Um, mm-hmm. And those actually started on like a macro level um, with celebrities. You know, the Kardashians are really infamous for doing these where they'll say they're giving away a $5,000 Gucci handbag. And these giveaways are run by these outside companies that reach out to other accounts and you can buy what's called a ghost spot in the loop giveaway, which means you pay $5,000 and you can get into this loop where everyone that wants to win a Gucci handbag will follow you. So that are those are fake followers in a sense, but not they're real people. Do you understand <laughs> what I'm saying? You know, but they didn't it's follow pe- you for you. They followed you right. for the Gucci handbag. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's something mm. that there was, was a pretty big trend, um, I would say, starting in 2018, 2019, uh, 2020, uh, 2021, there started to be a lot of backlash. People got really annoyed with it. Um, 
and it's kind of fallen off um, out of popularity. Um, another example of something you could say that could be fake is if I have an Instagram account and I say, hey, um, I'm giving away a $500 gift card to Amazon. In order to win, you need to go through all of my posts from the month of April and like and comment on all of them. Um, so that's, again, falsifying engagement. But all of these examples that I'm giving you are not really what people are talking about when they say that influencers are fake because I think so little people actually understand the machinations of the industry to know that that would be advantageous to do these things that it's people just think, oh, it's just a bunch of fake followers. But mm -hmm. so that's not really the case, but there are a lot of instances where things aren't exactly what they seem, if that makes sense. So what is building a genuine, authentic person by person, no scams, no loops, nothing like that, viral growth on social these days, Instagram or TikTok? Like it is happening, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what, what are the best practices today? Uh, the best practices in 2022 was TikToks and Reels. Um, I watched, this is a true story. I watched a girl that I went to high school with go from a normal person to a million followers on TikTok through Get Ready With Me videos. Now, she hmm. could have been, she could have been doing these, um, you know, these behind the scenes things, but the other thing I think is important to know is no one's going to get a million followers by buying followers. That's just not a thing that happens. Mm. You know, you can kind of juice your growth in the beginning. You know, you can, um, I know from personal experience and just from what I've observed that the first a thousand followers are the hardest to get. Once you kind of hit a thing, like people will kind of start to kind of get more and more in the conversation. Um, but TikTok in particular is very, like it's the algorithm is so personalized that it's really easy to go viral if you can stick to certain trends. And so what this girl that I know did is she every single day does these videos where she does her morning routine. I don't want to like, you know, I'm talking about her favorite belief. She has four kids. She has this very specific lifestyle. She's very cute. And she just goes, a day in my life, four kids, morning routine. And they're kind of ASMR-y. They're something that TikTok really, really, really loves right now. TikTok is loving these videos. And I mean, people are blowing up. And that is the case on Reels as well. Um, you know, I've seen people go from 500, you know, especially when TikTok was really pushing Reels. Um, you know, that is kind of the new life. If you're coming in as a lifestyle influencer, that's kind of really the way to go. Um, you know, watch me go through a day of, um, you know, not to, so when I was on maternity leave recently, I got addicted mm -hmm. to these videos and I was watching this one girl almost every single day. And it was literally just like, watch me get ready with my six month old every day. And it's like, I don't know why I'm watching this, but it's tickling something in my brain. Um, so yeah, you know, like globbing onto these TikTok trends, um, you know, not just doing every single trend, but finding something that really 
fits your niche, uh, fits your audience. Um, and yeah, that, that's a really good, um, that's a good way to grow right now. Um, but things are changing all of the time too. Um, so I think, you know, I think building one, another thing that's been going on recently, which I think is a really good thing for the industry overall is brands and management companies and the industry at large has really started valuing engagement rates and follower loyalty over follower counts. Um, Hmm. so for a long time, it was this, you know, people were really trying to get to a million followers on Instagram. And, you know, those are the people who were getting the huge brand deals. Um, but there's, then there's, there's been this big push, um, to center, the importance of what they call nano and micro influencers, which can be anywhere from a thousand followers sometimes um, to, uh, you know, a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand um, with these really high engagement rates, like 6%, because it makes sense because to a brand that is a lot more valuable, if you have a million followers, but only 1% of them engage with your posts, Mm -hmm. then you're not going to be selling that much relatively. But you know, if I have 600 followers and every single person buys something off my link, that's, that can be even more valuable in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's been a really, really great course correction for the industry. Um, you know, really trying to see, okay, who are these people talking to? You know, is this someone who has a really great relationship with their audience, which I would say also is something that you can't really fake. You can't, right. it's really hard to build a loyal audience. It's really hard to build an audience who, if you recommend something, they'll buy it. You know, that's really, that's, mm. I'm sure, you know, that's, that's challenging and that takes a lot of trust and that takes a lot of mm-hmm. work. Um, and I think another aspect of this is, you know, traditionally and historically, most of the people who were able to get these huge follower counts, you know, were very similar, you know, 99.9% of them were white. It was very hard for mm-hmm. um, black influencers, um, other influencers of color to really break out into that million threshold. Um, but, you know, there were so many great influencers of color who had these extremely loyal audiences. And, you know, I think after 2020, when the industry really tried to self-correct and, you know, make sure that they were being equitable, that was one way that I know a lot of management agencies started to really hammer home, like, you guys are ignoring our clients who don't have these million follower counts, but have these extremely loyal, engaged audiences. Um, So I think that's one thing that the industry has done a good job of recently is kind of doing that course correction um, and kind of making it so you can't have a fake following. You really have to have Mm -hmm. people who care about you in order to be successful. How do you get your audience to engage? I think that... I think... Number one, I think it takes time and to build loyalty. And I think like the only way to do that is to be genuine and to be, you know, I think you're, everyone's not going to be for everyone, but the people who I've, I have seen who are able to have this career for 10 years, 15 years are the people who have worked long and consistently on building their brands. Um, Hmm. and again, not everyone's brand is going to be, uh, for everyone. You know, there are people on Instagram who their brands might be something that I am not interested in. And I look at their posts and I'm like, uh, I can't stand them. But if they have people that are into that, they will be successful. Um, 
And I think, I think it's really hard long-term to be, to, to fake that, I think. No, we were talking before we hit record. You're like, well, how did you build this thing to, you know, 30 million downloads or whatever? And it's been that exactly what you said. It's just, this is a real passion project for me. Mm-hmm. I never thought in a million years it would grow to the level it has. We're very selective about our partners and who sponsors this podcast. And our audience takes action. Like, they will go and click or buy or purchase. But I vet that really, really carefully. And same with the other platforms. You know, my website, my email list. We're really careful about what we feature. And that has proven successful. And then on social, you know, we don't have a huge following. It probably lags behind the other stuff I do. But, you know, those 60,000 people who follow me on Insta or whatever, that's been like step by step over time. So that isn't dead. That's what you're saying, right? Absolutely not. And as you're saying that, I wanted to tell you that Uh you have been able to build this because of influencers, because that is the influencer model. And I think that's something that people Mm -hmm. don't really understand, that influencers aren't just influencers. Influencers are podcasters. They are, Hmm. you know, authors, um, journalists. I, you know, I built my platform as a journalist by taking cues from influencers as I try to promote this book and get people to buy this book. So it's not a, you know, huge failure. I am definitely taking cues from influencers. Um, And, you know, so many people kind of use the, you know, when you talk about, you know, really trying to align your brand with Mm -hmm. things that, you know, your listeners will respect and care about. Um, you know, that's, that's something that one of the influencers that I interviewed talked about in the book, you know, how she has certain things that her followers know she really cares about. Um, one of them is that she is really into using clean products, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and she wants to make sure that all of her products are, you know, organic, eco-friendly. Um, and she has to be really, really careful about what products she does affiliate links for and partnerships with because she did a product that was a perfume, I believe it was. And one Ah. of her, a bunch of her followers were like, Hey, we looked at the ingredients. This isn't super clean. This doesn't really seem like your values. And they got really upset because this is something that she has like been very open about caring about. Um, so yeah, I think that it really, really, really matters. Um, and I Mm -hmm. think I think I genuinely believe that you can't do this job for more than a couple of years if you don't have a big, big following. And I think, or a a real following. And I think, I think a great example of this and not to get too off topic is the bachelor contestants. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like there have, there was a time where if you went on the bachelor and you made it to a certain level or even if you were on it for four weeks, you would emerge with 500,000 followers on Instagram or a million followers on Instagram. And a lot of people were like, oh, this is so annoying. Why is everyone getting to become an influencer? And it was really interesting to see not who emerged from the show. And that doesn't happen anymore, by the way. You can't do that anymore. It doesn't happen. Um, But who from the show 
was able to maintain that audience. And there are people who were on The Bachelor in 2015 who now have been influencers for five or six years, who have podcasts, book deals, all of this stuff, have a super loyal, engaged audience, and have really been able to build their brand. And then there's people who weren't able to do that and totally fell off. Um, and I think that's a good case study of, you know, you really do have to have a, even if you get a huge platform, you have to know what to do with it or it's not going to work out for you. That's such a good point. We, by the way, had Ben Higgins from The Bachelor season 20, oh, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Probably, probably the most popular Bachelor. And he's done great things with the influence that that show has gotten him. But it's kind of like, uh, you know, America's Got Talent or The Voice or um, those shows, right? You can win and sometimes you get a recording contract and sometimes you don't, you know? Yeah. You just don't. I mean, look at so, Jennifer Hudson. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or Kelly Clarkson. I mean, she knew mm -hmm. what to do with that moment. Um, okay, well, I want to switch gears and let's drill down even more into the world of influencers a little bit. You've written about the dark side of influencer culture. Is there anything else on the dark side of influencer culture that you think people who are looking to build an influence need to be aware of? I think that, unfortunately, the people who really built the influencer business and economy as we knew it didn't really, there was no way to know what it was going to become. And I think that young women now have a lot more understanding of what they're getting themselves into before they become an influencer, because I think any career has pros and cons, but I think the right. influencer pros and cons are very extreme. You know, on the one hand, you know, you can have this really incredible career where you get to work for yourself. Um, you know, you make a lot of money and it's extremely lucrative career. Um, you get to do a lot of fun things. Um, you know, you get to really pursue your passion in many ways. Um, but there's a lot of downsides, um, you know, living publicly, even in just the average good days is extremely taxing on anyone, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. influencers are very open to judgment from the public because they are so open about everything in their lives that, and they, it's easy to contact them, you know? So I think even the most benign influencer, the level of, you know, criticism and hate that they get can be really, really challenging to deal with. But just even on a, you know, boring day-to-day -day level, it can be really difficult to give so much of yourself and so much of your personal life and kind of not have a personal life and not have, like, it's really hard when your life is your work. Um, I know. And I think that, I think that's a pretty difficult, I think that, you know, I'm really curious to see how the kind of the next generation comes up because I think they have a, you know, Gen Z is a lot more, you know, millennials, we did a, we did a good job, but we, we were really kind of the, the first in the front lines of trying to figure out how to work on the internet. Um, and Gen Z, totally. you know, they have a lot more of an understanding of, you know, the pitfalls and how to protect themselves. Um, I'm actually thinking off the top of my head, there was this, influencer who was sponsored to go to Coachella. And after 
two days, I think she's 23. Um, you know, she was given the option to leave on the third day and she left and she posted a TikTok and she said, you know, I had the option to leave. Um, I didn't stay for the third day to be completely honest, although being at Coachella is amazing. It's 16 hour days in the middle of the desert. It's very taxing. And, you know, to protect my, you know, I was burnt out and I needed to leave. And there was kind of this debate online, um, you know, very much like Kim Kardashian, no one wants to work anymore sort of thing. Like how dare this privileged girl, you know, do this. But I think it is really, really taxing. Um, and I think Gen Z kind of has this really canny, a lot more understanding that you can't just give yourself a hundred percent to the public and just expect to come out okay from that. Well, see, and that's where you have a lot of insight. I think where you could perhaps help the listeners of this podcast, because the majority of them lead a semi-public life. If you lead mm -hmm. at a church or you lead a company, but particularly at a church, you kind of, and if you're on stage as a worship leader, a pastor, a preacher, you have that public persona. And what are some of the healthier practices? Like the people, and I, I love how you're emphasizing longevity too, because anybody can be a flash in the pan, but to make this something that you're going to do and a message you want to share for years to come, there are people who navigate the public-private dimension of what they do really well and people who navigate it very poorly. What are some of the best practices you've seen, some of the healthiest influencers who seem to have figured out where that line is and live on the safe side of it or the healthy side of it? I think that there have been a lot of people who over the past couple of years have been really trying to draw that boundary. Um, I think mm. it's definitely a work in progress for a lot of people, especially, you know, people my age who have been doing this sure. since they, they didn't realize how much privacy they were giving up. Um, but one thing that mm. comes to mind is, an influencer I follow, Dee Dee Rad, um, takes two weeks off a year, you know, which, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't sound that crazy on his face. But if you think about it, how many influencers do you know who just go completely dark um, for two weeks? And, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, they're really afraid to even take a weekend off because, you know, they feel like their uh, platform is, you know, kind of punished for not being constantly active. Um, right. Is the algorithm, algorithm going to penalize me or whatever? Right. 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 Um, but yeah, I've seen her do that. I think around the holidays where she's like, I'm going on vacation. I'll be back in two weeks. And her profile goes dark. And that, I mean, that sounds ridiculous for those of us working at a corporate job, but if you think about it, you know, most influencers don't do that. Um, you know, so I think like building boundaries, um, you know, another, Another one that comes to mind is uh, Krista Robertson, um, who is an influencer and blogger that has been doing this for a really long time. Um, you know, she had a baby and she's chosen not to share his name, not to share his face. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was a boundary that she drew and she doesn't share any personal information about him. And we don't know what he looks like. We don't know his name. Um, so that's a boundary. Um and I think one thing that a lot of people are doing, which I discuss in the end of the book, is a lot of people are starting to see influencing as not a business full stop, but a way to really build a long lasting business where influencing can just become a part of it. Um you know, if you talk to almost any influencer who's been doing it more than a couple of years, especially people who are a little bit older, 
they will tell you, yeah, I, you know, I have my influencing platform. I have my blog. I've been doing this for a long time, but I recognize that this isn't something I can do forever. And many people are, are, you know, trying to get those book deals, trying to do those podcasts. Um, There's a lot of people want to start businesses and there's a huge amount of really successful influencers who have built really successful businesses. Um, There's a influencer named uh, Amber Clark, who has a line of hair care at Sephora that's been there for a couple of years now and is really successful. Um, And I think a lot of people plan to kind of, you know, once you've really built this loyal audience, you know, you don't have to sell, you don't have to sell the people's stuff forever. You can start selling your own stuff Mm -hmm. and you can figure out, Mm -hmm. you know, what's a business that can really have some longevity that I can build you know, for myself and for my family and, you know, going forward. So I think that's a really exciting thing that's happening right now is people are really starting to nail down, um, you know, how this can be, influencing can just be kind of one part of their empire, so to speak. Well, I love, love drawing better boundaries and I didn't do a good job of that in the early days of social media. I probably shared like a lot of personal moments and my kids who are now adults, they're kind of like, you know, and they said it just gently a few years ago, but let's just enjoy this as a family. And it's amazing how many times I don't post something really significant or meaningful. And I'm taking more and more pleasure in just saying, this was just a great night out with friends and the internet doesn't need any evidence of that or a wonderful date night. And I don't need to prove to everybody that I had a date night or, you know, some really meaningful time with family that doesn't need to be shared with the rest of the world. Are you seeing more of that? Do you think we're morphing out of that? Or is that Absolutely. a sign of longevity? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that's happening just not to people that live on online in public, but just to people in general. Um, mm-hmm. I think when influencers started, there really wasn't a lot of downside in sharing everything about their kids. Um, until, until like, I think it was, you know, and almost every influencer you've talked to who started, I would say before the year 2016 or so, it really was just a creative outlet. It wasn't supposed to be. That's absolutely true. Yeah. It yeah. Was. It wasn't. I, I wouldn't even call myself an influencer, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, uh, I see yeah. that as a separate species, but like that was just a creative outlet for me to try to help other people. Uh Yeah. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, one of my favorite parts of doing the reporting for the book was um, one of the people I interviewed, Shannon, you know, she's been a mommy blogger for a decade and she, you know, was doing it before anyone really was thinking about this kind of stuff. Like, okay, what would it be like for your mom to be sharing things on the internet about you? Um, How much of yourself do you want to give away for free to the internet? Um, And that's something that she's really thinking critically about now. And I think is a really fascinating conversation, but I think that's also something that we're all trying to figure out. You know, like I said, Mm -hmm. I have a, I have a baby and, you know, sometimes I feel like I stopped myself recently where she's doing something or I'm like, trying to get a photo of her. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy this moment. And not everything needs to be a photo. She has, she's mm-hmm. going to have a hundred times the amount of baby photos that I had, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like trying to capture her doing something cute or saying something cute instead of enjoying the moment, you know, you're kind of like, Oh, I need to get this. I need to get this. So me and my husband have really been trying to make a pointed effort of being like, you know what? We're, we're not going to try and film 
every moment. We're just going to, some things can just be for us. Um, mm. And yeah, I don't know. I think everyone's trying to do that on a micro level as well. Stephanie, you hinted at this. And by the way, we've referenced the book numerous times. It's called Swipe Up for More, and we'll talk about it at the end as well. But let's pivot to the um, the haters, the snarkers, as you call them, the negative commenters. Church leaders have taken real hits on that over the last number of years. I mean, think about it. You lead a church of 100 people, you have 100 opinions. Lead a church of 1,000, you have 1,000 opinions. And because it's so public, they've been beat up. But every leader has been beat up. Um what are your best tips or what have you seen influencers do well when it comes to dealing with haters, snarkers, and negative people? I think it's really, really hard. Um, mm-hmm. I think the general consensus of the industry is to ignore it. Um, wow. Yeah. But I think, I think that the best practices that I've seen is if someone, you know, thinking critically about the criticism, but, you know, I mentioned in the book that there are forums and websites dedicated to hating on influencers and they really range, you know, some Mm. of them are, you know, some of them are genuinely like, oh, this really disappoints me that XYZ would do something. And, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. if, if I was an influencer, I, and I saw some, you know, and even, I'm sure you, I'm sure, you know, as a journalist, sometimes I get, you know, DMs or emails or comments that I'm like, oh, you know what? Like, yeah, that probably, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that story I wrote or that, that line or something I put on social media, you know, that wasn't my best, you know, I'm, that's something Mm -hmm. that I should, you know, own up to, but then there's also crazy stuff you get. And so if you, you know, if you, if you took every single one of those to heart, um, you would go insane. Um, and I think too, a thing that's really, really interesting about influencers, which I'm not really sure has ever really applied to celebrities in this way. Although I think it's starting to, in some aspects, um, is there are people who spend hours and hours and hours dedicated to hating on just one influencer. And there's an internet term for this called eating crackers. Sorry. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. Um, (laughs) We'll take care of it. Yeah. um, But the idea of it is someone annoys you so much that anything they do annoys you. So like Mm -hmm. you would see them eating crackers and you'd be like, look at that cheating crackers like she owns the place that's that's the that's the uh-huh. that's the uh-huh. where that's that comes from yeah yeah um and honestly the only public figure that i've ever seen this bec is what it's called on the internet um applied to is megan markle which is a whole other can of worms mm. um but since influencers and bloggers and public figures started there have you know you can find forums where hundreds of people post thousands of comments a day about things, every single slide an influencer posts because they hate them just that much. And I mean, how do you as a human being respond to that? There's no way Mm -hmm. to respond to that. That's, that's totally insane. So I think like, 
you know, having a little bit of a, a nuanced eye and how you handle this kind of stuff is probably the only way to get through it. But I think that's also, you know, something that, you know, the next generation is going to have to kind of grapple with. It's like, you know, if you enter into this job, you are entering yourself up to that level potentially of criticism. And that's really, that's really difficult for anyone to deal with. Oh, it's super hard. And we have an excellent audience. Like, I mean, I, I absolutely love the people that we have the privilege of working with. Um, and we get, we get off pretty light on this stuff, but every once in a while, there's also what I call issue people where Mm -hmm. if you trip over something, they will just DM you, email you incessantly about Mm -hmm. one issue. And we found the best thing is to acknowledge and not respond. Just like, thank you for your opinion. uh, And just keep going on. Like you, you, there are some wars you can't win. You also, I'm so glad you dealt with this and swipe up for more, but you talk about mental health Mm -hmm. and, that being in that public eye, being an influencer, getting that many negative comments, getting, uh, well, even, you know, living in that bubble on a regular basis is provoking some mental health issues in influencers. Can you talk about what you see and some best practices to deal with that phenomena? I think it's a real challenge. And I think it's something that is happening really on a societal level, because I think it's something Mm -hmm. that's affecting not just influencers, but any public figure. You know, I think any celebrity right now is dealing with a level of criticism that they've never dealt with before because the internet is just totally insane. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's, it is really, really challenging. Um, In the book, I make an analogy to a tightrope where being an influencer can be a really, really incredible thing where, again, you know, there's, you know, especially in this economy, there's something to be said about having your own business where you can make, you know, potentially millions of dollars a year and you own it outright and you don't have to answer to anyone. And, Mm. you know, it's really, really incredible. So you're doing this really incredible feat, but you're on a tightrope. And if you just make one little slip, you can really be in a bad situation. Um, whether that's, you know, a genuine, you know, a genuine, you know, faux pas, um, that you have to own up to. But even if you do something that, you know, people just, if people just decide to turn on you, which happens all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, you could also argue that the slip off the tightrope could be your own mental health. You know, that the unrelenting criticism can be something that eventually just takes you down. Um, And I think it is really challenging. And I think, again, that's kind of why there is this really big push in the influencer industry right now to focus on things like uh, taking breaks, uh, setting boundaries, um, Mm -hmm. and again, diversifying your business where, you know, if, if you're someone who, you know, is an influencer, but you have a really robust, um, if you have, say, have a podcast about, something you're passionate about. And then you also have this really incredible product line. Then you don't necessarily have to Instagram story all day because you have these other revenue streams coming in and you have mm-hmm. other things that you can, that you can do as part of your business that selling yourself is the entirety of your business. Um, so that's the thing I think people are really, uh, 
doing right now to try to protect their mental health and really try to set those boundaries. But I think it can be really challenging. Mm-hmm. I think that business of looking into a camera again and again and again and again, or getting behind a microphone, it's got to have boundaries and limits. On that note, monetizing influencer platforms, how does that usually develop? And talk a little bit about how brand partnerships really work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess I, I would like to hear specifics. What would you like to know? Oh yeah. So <laughs> if somebody has a thousand followers, 5,000, 10,000, they're, they're a bit of a niche uh, online, mm-hmm. but they definitely have momentum. How does that tend to work? I have a friend in the coffee space who's literally started it a couple of years ago as a product has, you know, as a project, I should say, you know, has, I think almost 60,000 followers now on Instagram and a, a YouTube channel that's blowing up. And I mean, the coffee gear he gets is incredible. Um, lots of brand partnerships, but how do you get from starting to there? I think you have to be really savvy about who you partner with and who, cause I think brand partnerships is kind of another tightrope because, you know, I have, 30 something thousand followers on Instagram. And if I just started tomorrow, um, selling things, anything on my Instagram that anyone paid me to do, um, my platform would go South very quickly. Um, so I think that's like another cultivation strategy where you really have to, uh, spend the time to get to know the brands, to try to pick like, what is actually something my audience will want to buy to integrate it into your content pretty seamlessly. Um, but in terms of how people reach you, Um, I think another interesting thing about, you know, this economy is as influencers have really come up, so have all of these other brands that are social media first. And so I think while, you know, some people have gotten really successful at selling themselves, a lot of people who never really would have become business owners were able to really create and start their own businesses via social media. So, and I talk about this a little bit in the book as well, that, a lot of the first big brand partnership companies were these direct-to-consumer, social-first companies um, who, you know, to be quite honest, you know, normal ad agencies kind of, you know, sniffed at like, oh, who are you? You know, whatever. Um, And some of them have really become, um, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like diff eyewear or something like something where, you know, maybe they didn't, you know, they're, you think about it from a brand perspective. So you want to start a sunglasses company and you might not have the budget for, you know, a big advertising budget. So instead of following, um, you know, the normal path to business, why not just send 50 pairs of sunglasses to influencers with 5,000 followers, 10,000 followers. And if they Mm -hmm. really like them, then that's kind of mutually advantageous for both of you. Um, So I think like that's something that a lot of people also kind of don't think about a lot. It's like, yeah, of course there's a lot of, um, I think a lot of times people kind of make fun of like Instagram famous products or influencer products um, as you know, like, oh, influencers all kind of sell out to the same people and they're all shilling the same mm-hmm. stuff. But in actuality, they're kind of like two two parts of the same coin, um, two sides of the same coin where like 
there's a lot of businesses I think that wouldn't exist without influencer marketing because it gave them the doorway to really grow as a brand. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And so is it that brands approach you or do you have to start hustling and approach brands? I mean, what we did with the podcast and beyond is we just started sharing content. We got this huge audience. People started knocking on our door and I said, no, not for a while. I want to build trust. I want to understand my audience. And then when we found the right partner and the right timing, we moved ahead, but it was a very slow process. And I had entrepreneurs like whispering in my ear, man, you should do this now. And I'm like, no, no, I want to do this for the long term. And let's find the right people, the right timing. Let me get to know my audience better. And so it was probably two or three years after millions of people started showing up that we said, okay, we'll welcome some sponsors on and and take it from there. Is that too conservative an approach? Or And we're real happy with where we landed on that, but monetization wasn't my first priority. I think it's definitely influencer by influencer. I think some people, um, you know, once they hit 15, I've, I've heard of people that once they hit 1,000, 1,500, they'll start cold pitching themselves to brands, um, especially brands that they know that they're aligned with. I think that would probably be something that would happen more commonly today, these, this day and age. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I would say five or six years ago, it was 100% um, brands coming to influencers, brands seeing that opening, seeing, you know, for example, one of the women I interviewed in my book, Caitlin, you know, her brand was very much, you know, she lived in South Carolina and then North Carolina. She, you know, had this kind of, you know, preppy Southern girl uh, vibe going on and a company that makes these you know, very Southern style monograms, uh, koozies and, you know, necklaces and stuff like that mm. reached out to her because they were like, Hey, you your readers are probably our customers. We want to give you some stuff for free. And so you will wear it and people will buy from us. Um, so I think that was definitely in the beginning of the industry, mm. like a lot, how it happened, but I've definitely heard of people, um, you know, once they get, you know, again, 1,500, 5,000 followers start pitching themselves, selling themselves. Um, There's also a lot more um, structure in place now where, you know, once you get to a certain uh, follower or engagement level, um, you can start uh, trying to find a manager. I know that management companies, um, you know, are always looking for new talent. So they might reach out directly to the influencer if, you know, they're, uh, if one of the agents sees them and likes what they're doing. Um, and I would say even in the last couple of years, it used to be that, um, and, you know, management companies are very, it's typical to a celebrity where, um, most big influencers have someone who will negotiate on their behalf, uh, these brand partnership deals. Um, and, I would say it used to be really only people who were pretty big, like at least half a million followers Mm. had an agent. But what I've seen over the past couple of years is there's that, that job uh, category has really exploded in growth. And there are so many more influencer agencies, um, you know, for all different types of influencers from bank to small and, um, I, I say that most people I see who have even just like 20,000, 25,000 followers have an agent at this point, uh, which, huh. you know, I think is now probably doing the majority of that kind of negotiating and pitching them um, out to people. Um, 
which is good. You know, that's, that's a sign of, you know, a real uh, maturation of the industry and, you know, keeping things above board <laughs> and having, mm. you know, having like contracts and all of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. whereas before it was really kind of the, mm-hmm. yeah. Whereas before it was really the wild west. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, all I can say as we wrap up is, uh, I am a car guy. So if there's anyone from an auto company listening, uh, reach out to me. DM yes. Me. Anyway, <laughs> I'm well, kidding. I, I don't I know have a, you, a car sponsor. One of, um, one of my influencers in the book, she had a partnership with Ford where she got a free Bronco. So never That's stop believing. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Got to hold out for that. That would be yeah. great. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, we covered a lot. The book is called Swipe Up for More. It's available everywhere. Uh, tell us where we can find you online and about your Substack. Yeah. Uh, so I think the best place to find me online is my Instagram. It's at Steph E. McNeil. Um, that's where I share the majority of my reporting. Uh, I am a senior editor for Glamour Magazine. So most of my writing lives there. Um, and I have a Substack as well. It's just stephaniemcneil.substack.com, which is more of a personal blog um, that... I, on my Instagram page, I like to share things happening in culture and influence our industry and, you know, ranging from funny stuff to things I like to read and, uh, book recommendations, all that kind of stuff. Um, and once a week on my Substack, I share other internet culture stories that I've enjoyed my own writing, just kind of a nice roundup of what happens on my Instagram. Um, that's great. But yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where you can find me all over the internet. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I told you that was going to be fun. Man, a lot of information there. And hopefully that helps you figure out your online strategy. I know it's pretty easy just to throw up your hands or go, you know what, it's so toxic out there, I'm going to quit. But I don't think that's wise to do that if you really want to reach people. I'm still amazed, you know. I do this, I'm sitting in the basement of my house and we have 30 million downloads and I'm sitting in the basement of my house. It's like, how does that happen? That happens when you're online. And when we do a live podcast recording, which we have from time to time, guess what? You know, we get we get people showing up. You might get a couple hundred people showing up. You might get, you know, a hundred people showing up. But guess what? When I do it in my basement here, and this is where I conduct the majority of the interviews, uh, well, usually 50 to 100,000 people on episode show up and 30 million downloads later, here we are. So take the internet seriously. It's worth it. If you want show notes and a lot more, we've just revamped our show notes. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 588. You'll find everything there or just click the podcast tab. You'll find that there as well. I want to thank our partners, Convoy of Hope. Uh, they are in the middle of hurricane season right now, getting ready for it. And they're feeding children around the world. You can help by partnering with them by going to convoyofhope.org slash carry and check out what Glue has. They have free texting for your church. Go to get.glue.us slash texting to sign up for free. That's get.gloo.us slash texting for more. Man, I had so much fun with this next episode. Uh, I hadn't heard of Scott Lyons, but I saw his book and I read it and it was fascinating. The interview is even better. And we are talking about Preaching and leadership and drama becoming addictions. How to deal with toxic bosses and coworkers. I get that question all the time. And practical strategies to deal with other people's drama. If you're in leadership, guess what? You got a problem with other people's drama. So Scott was an absolutely entertaining interview. Here's an excerpt. 
the boss who's a drama addict, because I get that DM so often. It's like, look, I'm not the senior leader in our organization, but my dr- my boss just goes from crisis to crisis, you know, flare up to flare up. Always something wrong. What do you do? Run. <laughs> get another <laughs> job. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Look, it, we're talking about power dynamics here, and it yeah. gets really tricky. Um your boss might have gotten to where they are because they thrive off stress and it's perceived as a strength. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They, they have a high tolerance for it, so they seem like they've got things under control even though they're always right. in it. They're, I'm going to be honest. I've, I've been asked this question before by you know, a lot of big you know, media sources that are like, mm that focus in business and it is a really tough position. You have to set your boundaries. You have to go, this is not me. This is not personal. How am I resourcing myself? They're in their crisis. How do I go back to my grounding practices? How do I do my breath work? How do I do my visualizations that bring me to a more settled place? How do I not enmesh with their crisis? That's coming up. And then if you subscribe, you'll get that automatically. You will also get Kevin Kelly, Brad Lominick, Richard Foster, John Acuff, Arthur Brooks, uh, Grant and Cheyenne Skeldon, Judah and Chelsea Smith, Jenny Katrin, Russell Moore, Dave Ramsey, and a whole lot more. That's all coming up on the podcast this year. We want to bring you the very best we can. If you subscribe, that helps. Even better if you share it with a friend. So just hit the copy link text it, share it on social media, whatever you need to do. If you post it on social, we will try to repost you. We do that on a regular basis. And also, have you signed up for my newsletter? I've got a newsletter that goes out every Friday. It's called On The Rise. I send interesting and curious things about faith, what we do, leadership, the next generation, and some really curious things like how did Korean barbecue become so big? Uh, etc, etc. So anyway, just things that really catch my attention. Plus, we got a weekly book recommendation and a whole lot more. You can subscribe and unsubscribe super easily. Just go to ontherisenewsletter.com. Check it out. And thank you so much for listening today, wherever you are, however you find yourself today. I really hope that this helped you identify and break a growth barrier that you're facing.